might recognize the name of Pascal from that famous quote he said about every human heart having a God-shaped vacuum that only Christ can fill. Well, Pascal, this famous 17th century French mathematician, also wrote this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. Now, that's a bold statement that all people, without exception, that includes you and me, seek happiness in our life. That every step we take in this life is to achieve happiness. Pascal is not alone in this belief. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian, the pastor whose preaching kicked off the first great awakening here in America, he wrote that the desire for happiness is insuperable, never can be changed, never can be overcome, or in any way abated. That's just as strongly worded, unalterably, our desire. Your desire, my desire for happiness cannot be overcome. And this desire for happiness never subsides and it never diminishes. John Calvin writes, all men seek after happiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous 20th century preacher, says we all desire to be happy. That is something that is innate in human nature. Now in these Great, great men of the faith wrote, they used gladness, happiness, and joy interchangeably as synonyms one for the other. And I believe that if you and I would stop and reflect on our lives, we would probably arrive at the same conclusion that they did. We want gladness. We want happiness. We want joy in our lives. We want joy in our homes. We want joy in our relationships. We want joy in our jobs. We want joy in our recreations. We want joy in our dishwashing detergents. I know that of which I speak, our dishwasher is broken. I, I mean, our cat, not Kathy, she's not broken. She's... She, she, I mean, our, our washing machine is broken. So we want joy even in our dishwashing. You know, we sometimes look for joy in the wrong places, don't we? And sometimes we put together some pretty elaborate schemes and things whereby we think we're going to find joy. But how long-lasting is that joy? How long-lasting is the happiness that we pursue or seek to produce ourselves? How are we going to find what we are really after? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because I have some good news for you today, and this is not new news, but it is good news. And the news is that Jesus gives us joy. This very thing that we restlessly, and relentlessly pursuing our lives, he gives it to us as a gift. 
But we receive this joy gift from the Lord only on His terms and by His definition because, as Jesus says, it is, quote, my joy. It belongs to Him. But we can and we must find our joy in Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles or find the one in the pew and turn to John chapter 15. And while you're turning there, I will say this, you all know how I hate to leave a series. <laughs> it kills me. You know, I get started and I just want to go on and on and on because such is the depth of God's word. But I decided this, in order to exhaust this passage, these verses, I might exhaust you. So today, after 10 weeks in these 11 verses, we're going to conclude uh, this series so we can make way for Palm Sunday next week, right? And Easter Sunday the week after that. So for one last week, let's stand as we hear read the word of the Lord from John chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you so faithfully fulfill your promise to us, that where your word is read and heard, and that place is your blessing. So bless us now by the presence and power of your spirit as we come to your word, looking for our joy in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And if you will look again at verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That tells us immediately that if you and I are going to find joy, this thing that we so relentlessly and unalterably pursue in our lives, and if we're going to find that joy on Jesus' terms, and by his definition, then we must see that there is an unmistakable, 
and an unbreakable connection between Jesus' words and Jesus' joy. The immediate context of the these things I have spoken to which Jesus refers is in verses 1 through 10. We've been looking at it for weeks. Everything that Jesus said requiring that those who love and follow him bear fruit, much fruit, more fruit. All he said about taking away unproductive branches, about pruning other branches to make them more productive. All he said about gathering up useless branches and throwing them into the fire. All he said about being completely dependent and disabled in our own strength. These things that he spoke in some way are to produce joy in us. Though if we're honest, we say on the surface they don't strike our ears as joy-producing. They sound more pain-producing. Instead of gladdening our hearts, they seem to trouble our hearts. If we broaden the context of the, these, these things I have spoken to include the entirety of uh, the, the, the Last Supper in the upper room, we hear more troubling things. The evening began with shock and embarrassment of the disciples as Jesus humiliated himself by kneeling before them and washing their feet. An act that we mentioned last week, that some of even the lowest, that even some slaves were exempted from, only the lowest of the low had to do it. And then Jesus does it and says to them, now you ought to also wash one another's feet. It's difficult to hear. Jesus said, one of you will betray me. It's difficult to hear. He said, I will be with you only a little longer. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Difficult to hear. He said to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Difficult to hear. He said, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. Difficult to hear. These are some of the these things that Jesus spoke to them. And the cumulative effect of these things on the disciples was not joy, but apparently trouble, because Jesus tells them twice during the course of this evening, let not your heart be troubled. So where's the joy to be had in these things? We avoid hard words, don't we? Difficult things. We believe that joy can't be found in them. But Jesus speaks them so that we can know joy. And God cuts us with them so that we may know joy. And Jesus prunes us with them so that we may know joy. Because joy is for Jesus to define. And that's why he says here in verse 11, My joy, my joy, may my joy be in you. To leave us uncut and unpruned. To allow any of us to live in a false pursuit of joy 
built on false presumptions and false definitions of what joy is, it's neither for our good nor is it for God's glory. And guess where we will end up? Unhappy, unjoyful people. The reality is that everything that Jesus says is true, but all he says is not easy. Everything that Jesus says is true, but everything Jesus says is not easy. And this truth is a vital part of what makes up our joy. But let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to connect this upper room to an Old Testament story. And I hope it's going to be helpful to you in making this connection between joy and the Lord's words. The story is found in Nehemiah. So I'm just going to refresh your memories about Nehemiah and give you a little context for this story. God's people had become so faithless. They had so forsaken and abandoned the Lord of love and the love of the Lord that the Lord sent them. Into exile in Babylon, the Lord allowed for the temple, for the whole city of Jerusalem to be completely destroyed. But God's plan was always to bring his people back to the promised land. And so now, in Nehemiah, they are back under the leadership of Nehemiah, who is their governor. And the people had a task given to them, and their task was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had been completely broken down. Well, when the task was completed, all the people gathered in the square. Can you picture it? All these people gathered in the square before the water gate, and Ezra, the priest, took the book of the law of Moses, which would be our first five books of the Old Testament. A platform had been built that was raised above the people, and had, it had been built just for the purpose of reading God's word. And so Ezra ascends the platform. And when Ezra opened the word of God, all the people stood. And Ezra read from the word of God from early morning until midday. And scripture says that every ear was attentive to the reading of the word of God. Then Ezra blessed the Lord. And all the people lifted up their hands and answered, Amen and Amen. And then the people bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And the Levites, the priestly line, they moved among the people that were gathered to give them the sense of the meaning of God's word so that all the people understood it. And when the people understood the word of God, they began to weep. And Nehemiah, and Ezra and the Levites worked to calm down the people. And they said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep 
Do not be grieved. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So all the people went their way to eat and drink and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Notice again the insoluble, indivisible connection between joy and the Word of God. It was difficult for God's people to hear God's Word. That's why they wept. That's why they grieved to hear what they owed to the God who had rescued them, redeemed them, called them by name, said to them, you are mine. To hear how faithless they had been. To hear how they had disobeyed God's word and broken their covenant promises with the God who had been so kind, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The God who had forgiven their iniquity and transgression and sin and scattered them as far as the east is from the west. Of course they wept at the word of God and their utter failure to be faithful to him and to do all that he required. To hear how they had pursued their own happiness and joy on their own terms. Terms that at times seemed easier to them, more pleasant, more fun, instead of God's terms for them. But instead of discovering joy, what happened? They brought destruction upon themselves. But on this day, they're told, do not weep, do not mourn. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The word of the Lord, difficult as that was for them to hear, was not intended to crush them. In fact, the joy from the Lord, the joy that the Lord gave would sustain them even in the midst of the, word, uh, of the Lord's words that had rightfully grieved their hearts. And so they rejoiced. They feasted. They celebrated because they understood the word of the Lord as difficult as it was to hear. Who? Who? But a God who is joyful in and of himself. Who but a God who dwells in a place where joy is its essence would declare feasts for his people. Celebrations. Think of it. The life of Israel revolved around feasts. Seven of them. Seven feasts every year. Feasts that didn't last just one day or one hour, but feasts that lasted for weeks. In addition to those seven feasts, every seven years there was the feast of the sabbatical year. Everybody got a, day, a year off. The land rested. Does that sound like joy to you? Sounds like joy to me. 
And every cycle of seven years, there was the Feast of the Year of Jubilee. Captives were liberated. Debts were forgiven. The land was at rest. Joy by God's design. It's no wonder then that we seek joy, you and me. We're, we're made by God for joy because joy is part of the essence of who God is. How people love. To picture God as wrathful. Indeed, God is wrathful over sin. He hates sin. That's why he sent Jesus. To rescue us from that wrath. To rescue us from that sin. Jesus took God's wrath against sin, against your sin and my sin, on himself, on the cross, so that instead of wrath, you and I could know what? Guess. What? 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 Joy. So that we can know joy because our God is a God of joy. And our joy is found in these words that Jesus has spoken to us. Even when they are difficult to hear, as they often are. Even when they stand against or are counter to the narrative that we write for ourselves, which they often do, or for the narrative that this unhinged culture in which we live seeks to write for us, we know that our joy is found in what God speaks to us. It's for our good. Look in verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so, and so here it is. Obedience equals abiding equals love equals joy. Obedience equals abiding equals love equals joy. Jesus' words are joy. You and I can choose to leave them. We can choose to reject them. That's our choice. But you will never find joy outside of them. Now, I've taken a long time to talk about joy. To tell you that Jesus has it for you and me. It's what he wants for us. It's his gift to us. You find it in his word and in his love for you. And let me just say, it's not partial joy. It's complete joy. Jesus says so, the end of verse 10. That your joy may be full. So full and feasts. Same thing, right? Full, the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament feast. You know, when you have feasted, you are full. You don't have room for even one more bite. That table, that buffet may still be laden with the most delectable looking food. But when you're full, you just can't eat anymore. And so it is with the joy of Christ. When we are full of His joy, there's no room for any other joys. So we don't need to look for other joys and other people or other places or other events. We have all the joy that we need in Christ. So our joy comes in digging into the things He says. Even the difficult things because there is joy to be found in them. 
abandoning them for an easier way will not lead to joy. I'm going to end with another barrage of quotes. You ready? There's another barrage of quotes, but they're so good. 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor, Robert Murray McShane. Some of you, even right now in this year, may still be using his Bible reading plan for the year. He wrote this. Christ has a body such as I have, yet he never tasted one of the pleasures of sin. The redeemed, through all eternity, will never taste one of the pleasures of sin, yet their happiness is complete. Isn't that amazing? What we think brings us joy here on earth doesn't exist in heaven, and yet in heaven, without it, without pursuing it, our joy will be full and complete. Our joy is not tied to the things of this earth. John Piper, Christianity is a divine project of replacing inferior joys and inferior objects with superior joys in God himself. Thomas Chalmers, called the Scotland's greatest 19th century churchman, writes that the heart desires to have some object of joy. This desire is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The joy that is the essence of God in heaven, Jesus' joy must expel, eradicate, eliminate the knockoff versions of joy that the world offers. Joy knows, Jesus knows that joy doesn't come easy. It comes through difficult things, it comes through difficult words, but it does come. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It might be the ultimate understatement for me to say that the cross was difficult or not easy, but it wasn't. Because an easy way would not have led to real joy. Everybody okay? What? It's not a person. Is it a person? Good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So great to have a unsolicited attention getter because <laughs> you're all listening right now aren't you so I'll say it again an easy way would not have led to real and lasting joy so Jesus did the hard thing didn't he these things I've spoken to you 
from Jesus may not easy, be easy for us, but they lead to joy, so we need to obey them. Because here's the thing. When we obey the word of the Lord, do what he commands us to do, we feel the Father's pleasure, don't we? And is there any greater joy than feeling the pleasure of the Father resting upon us? This is ultimately our source of joy. That's why we're not going to find this kind of joy in the world. It, it can't give it. Pleasing our Father, whom Scripture says rejoices over us with singing. Can you believe it? God the Father says of Jesus, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus says, My Father is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. This is the joy of Jesus. How could we not then have joy in pleasing our Father? So, I conclude this series by challenging us to be obedient, to go into the world and bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit, as difficult as it may be at times. I challenge us to welcome the cutting that the Lord does, the, the pruning. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. It's for our good, and it will lead to our joy, Jesus' joy. I call us to abide in Christ because Christ calls us to abide in Him, to stay near Him. As C.S. Lewis says, if you want to get warm, stand by the fire. If you want to get wet, get in the water. If you want joy, this thing that we apparently seek, get close to. Abide in Jesus and his love for you and you will know joy and your joy will be full. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that your joy is not of this world. It belongs to you and you give it to us. We pray, Lord Jesus, now that you will help us, each seated here, standing here this morning, to seek our joy only in you, to expel those lesser joys, that they might be exposed before our eyes for what they are, so that we turn our eyes toward you our source of joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.